no, it's the Creator Spaces show. Do you consider yourself a creator? Yeah, this is an interesting question. So I would say yes and no, because yes, technically I create things on a pretty regular basis. For anybody who doesn't know, I'm a full-time writer and analyst with The Hustle. Specifically, I write for one of our newsletters called Trends, which is where we basically sift through a bunch of industry data to try and identify and surface like new business opportunities. So I ship articles every week. In that sense, I think I'm a creator, but I don't use that term. When I think creators, I think of people who are out on their own, building their own business and shipping. I'm in this unique position where I have a very secure job where I get to create all the time, but I'm not necessarily tied to the success of that creation in the same way that like a solo creator might be. That's a long answer, but technically, yes, I think I would fall into that category only because of the work that I do, but I don't actually use it to self-describe. I actually think of myself more as a technician, which for anybody listening to this who does think of themselves as a creator if you struggle to ship on a regular basis, this might be helpful. I think of myself as a technician and the work that I do is like a carpenter's work. So when you go into like professional publishing, one of the first things to die is procrastination. Yep. <laughs> you have to ship every single week. And that has been one of the most helpful things for me. It just takes the mystery out of the process. I'm wondering where that term technician came from, because that's not one I've heard before. For me, the term technician comes from the book, The E-Myth. The the idea is that most self-described entrepreneurs don't actually build a business, they build a job. And in order to like really be an entrepreneur, you need to build a system that can function without you. And so the E-Myth is all about how to build those systems. And he basically breaks a business down into three key types of people that make a business run. There's entrepreneurs who are the visionaries and they're making decisions at a high level. Second stage is managers, which is pretty self-descriptive. And then there's technicians, which is anybody who's doing the hands-on work. And often when I use that word, People call me out saying, oh, what we do is so much more important than being a technician or something like that, as though it's somehow derogatory. But I, I actually like it. I think it indicates somebody who has turned their work into a craft, something that can be replicated over and over again, which indicates a certain level of skill. So that's what I mean when I say technician is somebody who just does the work. And so you've spent quite a bit of time where you've been doing quite a bit of work recently is around how seven-figure newsletters make money, how newsletter businesses grow. And I'm guessing you might be part of the team behind the infamous newsletter report from last year, but that all consolidated into this one super viral tweet thread that you put out. Um, <laughs> tell me a little bit about how that thread happened, how it came together, and how seven-figure newsletters make money. Yeah, sure. Again, as background for anybody who may not know me, which is probably everybody. I'm a writer at The Hustle. The Hustle is one of a handful of newsletters that have really breached the gap into multi-million dollar businesses. So we, we have this community of entrepreneurs and a lot of them were asking us to break down how the newsletter business works. That's what we set out to do about almost a year ago now. I was split off from my kind of normal day-to-day -day and basically devoted all my time for about six months to interviewing people, not only across our team, at the hustle and trends, but also at places like Axios and Morning Brew and Washington Post and BuzzFeed and all these other places, just to get a really clear idea of how multi-million dollar newsletter businesses are built. And initially, we were planning to launch it as a standalone product and also obviously apply what we learned to our own business. 
the hustle was acquired by HubSpot. And so like the forces behind the standalone product had changed. We didn't really need that kind of revenue anymore. So we've just been publishing a lot of it for free, which is where the tweet thread that you mentioned comes from. As for the lessons learned, it's been a really interesting ride, man. Basically, we developed this model after interviewing dozens of people across some of the biggest companies. We distilled everything that we had learned and basically tried to figure out how does it all fit together. And what we ended up with is a model that we call a newsletter engine. And it basically operates on three levels. So you have the very foundation of everything, which is your product level. That is the newsletter that you write, the technology that stands behind it, and the community that you're building. If those things aren't in place and they aren't done, nothing else is going to help. It doesn't matter how you monetize. It doesn't matter how you grow. You can't grow your way out of a product problem. So product is the foundation of everything. And it ultimately makes everything else easier if you start with a really good product. Sitting above that is monetization. So once you have a strong product and you've proven that people want it, you'll basically reach a point where you can monetize. Now, there are three different ways to monetize a newsletter. You have free subscriptions, which make money through ads. You have low-cost subscriptions and you have high-cost subscriptions. And the idea is that you eventually build all three. So your free subscription becomes your largest list and it helps to sell your low-cost subscription. And then your low-cost subscription helps to sell your high-cost subscription. And when you know how those pieces work together, there's no limit to the number of newsletters you can build within that model. So you can have an example like James Altucher, who's got one free newsletter and somewhere between two and four low-cost subscriptions and two and four high-cost subscriptions. But you can basically pull those levers however you like to continue growing your revenue once you know how they work. So that's product at the bottom, monetization. And then at the very top, you have growth, which is how do you get more people? How do you grow these things? And I'm happy to go into detail there as well. But basically, we found that there are a few key levers that newsletters pull for growth. There's three of them, time, money, and audience. And the one that you pull has to do with which resource you have the most of. So if you're just starting out, you got no audience and you've got no real growth budget, then you're looking at time-based strategies, things like SEO or organic social media engagement, PR podcast appearances, all those kinds of things can all be done for free, but they take time. Money is a little bit more obvious. You're paying for traffic. And there's some nuances to how to do that. And then audience, that's the one everyone's shooting for, right? When your audience is actually spurring your growth by recommending you to other people, that's where real magic happens. So if you're game to do a little case study, yeah. so you've got $5,000 and mm-hmm. zero audience and up to 10 hours a week. Yep. How do you take those resources and following this model, build out your newsletter? Great question. So the quick answer, and I'll caveat this, do my journalist due diligence, which is... There are lots of growth experts who will have a lot of opinions on this and be more qualified to give you specifics. But I'll tell you how I would answer this based on the interviews that I've done with them. So even if you have growth budget in the beginning, very often, if you're unknown and you haven't really developed the product yet, you don't want to be spending money on growth for a few reasons. When you look at paid growth, the most important figure there is something called your target cost per acquisition. How much do you want to pay to acquire somebody? Now, in order to figure that out, what you you really need to know is how much each reader is worth to your newsletter. Now, there's a chance if maybe you've grown other things and you feel pretty confident in your paid growth strategy. I'm not going to say you would never go out of the gate doing it, but for the vast majority of people, the vast majority of cases, for at least the first few thousand,
thousand subscribers. You want to treat it almost more like a friends and family round where you're doing a lot of one-on-one outreach to people that you know who would like the product that you're creating to the early subscribers who so stumble across you and happen to sign up. for your first few thousand subscribers. Yeah. And again, I'll caveat this by saying we're talking multi-million dollar newsletters here. So there are some people though who are in this game to make $60,000 a year. And for those people, a lot of these numbers, you can make them a little smaller. But generally speaking, if you're trying to build like a seven-figure newsletter, this is basically what we found. Zero to 10,000 subscribers, that's your friends and family around. What you're doing there is you're identifying a product market fit and you're testing a lot to see what you enjoy creating, but also what really resonates with your growing audience. And as growth is slow, it doesn't have to take a long time, but it's very manual. So that's zero to 10K. Now, again, generally speaking, you are in a position to monetize a free newsletter around 70 to 80,000 subscribers. That's through ads, right? Yeah, through ads. Again, there are ways to do it earlier. So for anybody listening, the more niche your audience is, the earlier you can monetize them. The real way that you determine when you're ready is when you have two of these three things. There's basically three things that affect whether a newsletter can be monetized. It's how large the audience is, how active they are, and how ready they are to spend money. So if you have a thousand doctors or even a hundred doctors on your newsletter list who are all extremely interested in buying an x-ray machine for $50,000 or however much that costs, you can probably monetize that list much earlier, right? Yeah, but the more general... B2B. It's yeah. big numbers, yeah. small lists. Exactly. So you need two of those three things, a big list, an engaged audience, and the willingness to spend money. And you can pick whichever one you want, but obviously you can see how they affect each other. So if you have a really engaged list that is full of people willing to spend money, it can be quite small. If you have a really big list, but they're not really high opens, it's going to be harder to make money for your advertisers. And so those people need to be willing to spend on like large products. But that's the basic indicator for when you're ready to monetize is you have two of these three things. Typically speaking, that happens around 70,000 readers. It can happen earlier. There are plenty of case studies of it happening earlier. But if you're just looking for a very general figure and you're shooting for seven figures, like you want to build the next hustle or the next morning brew, you are best off putting your head down and just focusing on making a kick-ass newsletter until you hit that like seventy to 80,000 subscriber mark. And at that point, you can start to monetize ads. So when I'm looking the growth of a newsletter, especially when you're trying to get to, let's call this like enterprise scale with a newsletter, should I be looking for some proportion of organic growth? How do I know I have that market fit? Yeah, that's a great question. I've never actually heard it posed that way. So I will say just from being in the trenches on one of these things, you do get a sort of sense for it early on. Now, when you're scaling beyond 100,000 readers and you look at people like The Hustle and Morning Brew and Axios and Newsette and all these other things, they're well into the millions. Changes in your audience become much more pronounced. So like a 0.1% unsubscribe rate is still thousands of people. So you notice changes differently there. Um, But when you're in those early days, just hustling, the change is so small that you notice when something all of a sudden works. Actually, there's a great example. So I'll divert for just a brief second to answer this. One thing that people get wrong with free growth is they think that the goal is to share their message as broadly as possible, which is understandable, but that's not really what you're trying to do. When you're growing for free, what you're really trying to do 
is get other people to talk about you. That's the goal. It's not about who does the most work. It's not even, unfortunately, about who does the best work. Very often, it's about who is talked about the most. And so that is what you're trying to do when you're growing for free. And this is very visible. When you look at the growth trajectory of newsletters, you see it the day you get mentioned somewhere, especially early on, because your subscriber count, instead of growing by like one or two or 10 or 20 a day, all of a sudden, you'll just have this huge jump. When this Twitter thread that you mentioned first went viral, I think I grew by something like 500 or 1,000 followers. And for anybody listening to this, I've only got close to 3,000. So that's a, a doubling. Yeah, you notice it. And it, I like to think it was because it was a good Twitter thread. But the reality is there were people who had far more influence and far more reach who mentioned it. Yeah. And now I'm going back to that case. When you say reaching out, it's not just reaching out to one-to-one, but reaching out to those key influencers who can share out your content. Yeah, it's definitely about outreach to people who are interesting and well-connected, but it's also got to be organic too, because the more visibility they have, the more likely they are to be very difficult to reach. So giving a little bit of a different case now, if you've got a small audience, but in a very high value niche, how would you recommend going about monetizing that audience? Let's say you've built up your free newsletter and now you've got 2000 doctors who own their own practices. Yeah. Okay. Great question. So this is where the newsletter engine becomes interesting, right? To step back for a second, right? I said, there's three ways to monetize. You have free, low cost and high cost, and they feed into one another. It's important to note that represents the highest possible value of a newsletter business. The reality, though, is that you can actually cherry pick from it, too, if you understand how it works. So if you have a really active Twitter following, you can monetize that straight into a paid newsletter, as long as you understand the function that both of those things are doing. Like your Twitter following is your free distribution. That's how you're building trust. And then you use that to pour people over to the page. So if you have a small audience that's high value, I would say you have three options for monetizing out of the gate, maybe four. The beauty of what you said is that you said small audience, high value, and that actually gives you quite a bit of flexibility. So here's the four options laid out. The easiest and quickest thing to do would be to look for an affiliate deal that matches well with your audience's needs. The beauty of affiliate marketing is that a lot of the best programs are self-serve. So you don't need a sales team to set them up. You don't even really need to convince anybody to let you participate. A lot of times it's literally just you sign up and you're given a link and you're, you're off and running. So it's a very low lift way of monetizing an audience. And if you have a very niche audience, that can buy expensive products, that can be a really great way to monetize out of the gate. So that's your option number one, the affiliate deal. And some of the best ways to find that early on, you can look on self-serve platforms or you can do direct outreach to the companies and say, hey, I think my audience would really love what you sell. I'd love to work out a deal. Very often, they're willing to play. The reason is a lot of companies, they're doing paid growth. So they already know how much it costs them to get a customer in the door. Now, if you're willing to bring them a guaranteed client, understand what their budget is for that and so they can play ball. The thing to do though, this is just a quick tip for anybody who's interested in going affiliate is try linking to the product once in your newsletter or at least once without an affiliate link and just track how many people actually click it and you can do that as many times as you like to figure out what the best products are that your people actually want and once you find them then you go find those affiliate programs and that data can very often get you in the door if you email cold email a company let's say the company doesn't have an affiliate program that you can just sign up for you can cold email them and say hey i sent 50 people to your website last week that's a pretty good opener for most companies. Yeah. Affiliate would be one of the easiest ways. The other option, you could do ads. The other option though, if you really do have this niche audience, would be to consider paid content. Now, let me give you a couple of things to think about if this is a move that you're considering making. So one thing that a lot of Substack authors run into, which is 
a challenge is you build this free audience and then you're a single creator. So you're doing a lot of work to maintain the free audience. And by the time you go to do your paid audience, you tapped your potential in terms of content creation. So what a lot of Substackers will do is they say, sign up to my paid newsletter and you'll get like the special Sunday edition. And the trouble with that is it's just not really a compelling offer for a lot of your readers, right? One more newsletter that just talks about more of what you already do. It's a natural place to try and start, but you can do better. The thing to try with your paid subscription is something different. And the way to think about it would be like, what financial value can you provide to people that would get them to pay you for that information? So in the case of the doctors, let's say your free newsletter is a general practice thing. And you've got a handful of these doctors, and maybe they're all running their own practice. Maybe there's room for a paid newsletter that talks specifically about growing your practice, right? And by signing up for that, they're going to make more money, or at least there's a good chance they're going to make more money. That makes the decision to pay you a few hundred dollars a year much, much easier for them. That's the way you want to think about potential for paid products. Now, I mentioned there's low cost and high cost. The main difference between them, aside from the price, is their level of specificity. Low cost paid newsletters are typically known as front end newsletters, and high cost are called back end. So your free product sells your front end, and your front end sells your back end. Front-end newsletters typically run 5 to 10 bucks a month, so you're talking like 60 to $120 a year. Back-end is typically 500 bucks a year and up, and you can play with those prices however you want. But as a general rule of thumb, 5 to 10 bucks a month for a front-end, 500 plus per year for back-end, and the back-end can go all the way up to several thousand dollars. So if you're teaching doctors how to grow their practice, and I don't know what the economics of being a doctor are, but let's say that 10 new patients could earn them another $50,000 for the year or something like that. Sure. They might be willing to pay $2,000 for that or more. What you really want to be looking at is will this information keep working no matter how many people sign up for it? So in the case of a doctor marketing one, it might, as long as it's general enough that your audience is pretty spread out. But if you have like the newsletter for marketing for doctors in LA, you have a a ceiling on how many people can be using your tactics before they stop being effective because everyone in a given area is doing them. And so in that case, and that's actually, it's common, like you have financial newsletters, investment newsletters and stuff that they can't be very popular because if they are, a given strategy is less likely to work. So when that's the case, then you need to push your price up accordingly because you will not build a huge audience for that. So those are the types of things to think about. You have your potential for an affiliate deal. You could do ads or you could potentially bump that audience straight over to a paid product or an expensive paid product. In the case of situation that you just outlined, I would probably start with affiliate deals because it's the like easiest lift and just see where that goes. What's your North Star metric for success? Oh, good question. Personally, the way I think about success probably has something to do with a combination of usefulness and enjoyment. Is this useful to the wider world? To be honest, I'd say both of these are luxuries. But as you get into a place where you're like more and more established and financially successful, then it becomes easier to make decisions about projects that you actually enjoy and spending your time in ways that you enjoy. And that was not always the case. I definitely scrapped for a long time. I've been self-employed ever since college. But a lot of people on here are like entrepreneurs and self-employed. You know how hard it is and how much pressure comes with that way of making money. When I'm in a position to make a decision that is not like financial first, I typically try to and try to appreciate having that ability. If you could send a tweet back to your start, what would it be? And you get to choose the start. Oh, 
good question. Okay, so tweet has got to be short. All right, I mentioned that before I came here, I worked at a company called TopTel, and that was the first job that I had ever really had outside of college stuff. So I ran my own web development company for half a decade or so. I did that for a long time. And my first job was building community at this hyper-growth startup with super smart people. This was back when community was just getting started. My job was to fly around the country and host happy hours. It was a little bit more complicated than that, but I was getting away with murder. The fact that they were paying me actual money to basically host events with really cool people. And at some point, my grandfather passed away and I was there when it happened. And it was one of those moments where you're just reminded of how short life is. And you can't live with that awareness every day. You'd go crazy. But every once in a while, it sinks in. I remember I wanted to be a writer. I didn't want to be an event host. And I was just getting really good at events. So I made the decision to leave. And that was really hard because I was walking away from the best money I'd ever earned with no clear path to doing this thing that I wanted to do. No idea of how it was going to be pulled off. I just knew that I had to do it. And if I didn't do it, then I never tried. So that was a big turning point for me. That was two years ago. And if I was to tweet back to that person, I would just say, it works out. I'm now working with a way cool company, some of the coolest people I've ever known, doing some of the coolest work. Like, I can't believe this is a real job. So that would be it. It works out. And for anybody here who's creating something right now, there's not always a clear path from where you are to where you want to be, but it can still work out in ways that you'd never predicted. And the only way to figure it out is to give it a shot.